Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club podcast. I'm your co-host, Hoy, and with me as always is that, I don't know, let's see, shape-changing wizard, Jeff Goad. <laughs> I don't know. What kind of form am I in right now? Who can tell? Uh, a blob of jelly on a sedan chair, probably. <laughs> All right. Actually, since I had the air conditioning turned off so that I don't have that noise in the background, I do actually kind of feel like I'm a blob in a there chair right now because it's very hot and humid in this attic right. that I'm in well, at the moment. It's exactly the same in Brooklyn. And uh, speaking of Brooklyn, our fellow Brooklynite joins us, Brian Yaksha. Hello, Brian. Hey. Brian is best known for uh, his design work for Best Left Buried with uh, Throne of Avarice and uh, Spoils of the Gorgon Coast, and as well as his own work on Rakehell Zine and countless other cool supplements for Mork Borg, Troika, and the like, which can be found in HIO. Hello, Brian. Hey. So, Brian, uh, you know, before we get into the book that we're talking about this week, I'd like to know a little bit about your history as uh, you know, a gamer and a reader of speculative fiction so tell us a little bit about yourself oh god so i'm trying to i mean i got into tabletop when i was 10 like year 2000 at a family reunion one of my cousins had the third edition monster manual and monsters are very cool so i was like hey i want to have this and know this and uh pretty much got started in the 3.0 3.5 you know glut of uh content which was an interesting time if you didn't fully know the rules i feel like you could appreciate it much better because if you knew the rules it it was so much bloat but uh, a lot of cool art a lot of cool ideas and uh, none of which I can uh, appreciate anymore, knowing the inside baseball mm. and how the sausage is made, as it were. Uh, as far as being a reader of just fiction in general, I was always a very heavy reader. Actually, funny, slightly controversial. Uh, in third grade, I was transferred out of a private school because they uh, stated for the purposes of, uh, I guess, sort of, fraudulently gaining state tax like funding that i was dyslexic i was reading at a college reading level in third grade because my both of my parents were always reading to me and so i was also a big dinosaur kid so i knew some latin because you know dinosaur names and so when i got tested for this uh they're going into a public school. It's like, yeah, this kid's reading at a college level. I don't know what those people were saying. And so that got my previous school into some small amount of trouble. <laughs> there you go. Mm. Stick it to the man, I guess. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I've always been a big reader. Uh, my mother worked at our local college for a bit when I was very young. And so she was able to uh, use the the printers and the old nineties computer lab. And so I remember reading like spiral bound copies of war of the worlds with like illustrations and stuff as a little kid. And just, you know, just having a few illustrations really does elevate the work when you're that mm -hmm. young, because you want to figure out why this piece exists. 
I think it elevates it. I mean, I'm 43 <laughs> right now, and I feel like it still yeah. elevates it. Uh, I'd see. I found that as I've as I've grown older, it diminishes it for me because I have a better encapsulation in my mind's eye of what I want things to look like, and so now I don't get to have that as How much. does that? I mean. Which is how does weird. that work for you then as a designer then? Because if you're like, okay, well now I have this encapsulation, and then, uh, but you know the the commercial pro- uh, uh, pressures of of game design obviously say, hey, you got to have some art, right? And how how? <laughs> oh well, I mean, I I enjoy bashing things together to get more across the the vibe and tone of art when I have to do art, and also like I I worked in comics for like six years i'm dating an artist so all of my roommates have ever been artists i'm trapped in that circle so i'm used to people just being like is this what you meant and i'm like no but it's close (laughs) enough because you're never gonna carve that image directly out of my head and i know i sure can't do it but uh you know i it's also the give and take of like what you're gonna give to the audience in a designed product like uh uh, ben Brown, who did the art for Spoils of the Gorgon Coast, who does all the art for like the mainline Best Left Buried stuff. He did the cover for Throne of Avarice. I envisioned the Gorgon Coast to be... I, I pitched it as uh, a very Dark Souls 2 pastiche of Renaissance Italy. And so I intended for everything to be a lot more grotesque and monstrous, like literally, you know, the whole, the whole gimmick for that is like, oh, this, uh, this play on like Catholic indulgences are a bunch of terrible dynastic people who drink the blood of monsters because that thinks that they think that brings them closer to God. And so they're all horrifically mutated. And there was some good ghoulish art, but I was picturing like, no, I want you to like shove like half a crocodile coming out of that guy's mouth, like a, (laughs) like a xenomorph second mouth, but I'm not going to demand that of a person because as long as the vibe gets across, right. I'm happy. And I guess that maybe is, um, uh, so some stuff that's a, maybe a little bit maximalist might be also make it like a slightly harder point of entry in some cases. Um, oh, ab- absolutely. I'm, I'm well aware that I am often inscrutable, which is why I've, when I work as an editor, I'm always about making things as approachable as possible. It's also why I don't ever get into fights with people who edit my work because I know people can't use it until they take a hatchet <laughs> to it. So that's, uh, you know, I guess that's a, a healthy way to, uh, to approach this stuff because, um, you know, it's uh, with that give and take with gaming, right? Because it's, it's the final, whatever we want to say, the final pro- the final use to, of it is is not up to us, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I know people who, they view it as art, and it certainly is art. But I also know people who, they're like, oh, well, we, we are just toy makers. And it's like, no, no. And even then, you got to put a choking warning on your toy when you sell it to somebody. It's, it's a more responsible thing. It's more the case of, I'm giving you something. I can't tell you what you know what to do with it what not do with it, and have you respect that but i should put on there hey don't don't choke your, yourself with this or don't beat someone to death with this and uh you know that's the basic level of responsibility to it and so i i w- always am willing to bow my creative integrity to the point that people can actually use what it is i'm giving to them for its intended mm-hmm. purposes 
So uh, you mentioned, so it sounds like you were a very eclectic reader, uh, just a lot of things coming across, and certainly with a love of monsters there, uh, even dinosaurs when you're much younger. <laughs> Do you have any particular yeah. uh, resources that you think are particularly valuable for gamers? You know, it uh, could be something completely off the wall, oh. it could be something much more straightforward. Honestly, I've been figuring out more weird game design stuff from like video games mm. lately, which yeah. is, I don't know, that feels like it should be an obvious thing on some level, but it's just like, I'll look at a system that exists in a game that is just sort of like, there's something to that there that could help solve a problem elsewhere. And I find that maybe it's just because it's a little bit more practically applied. Like, I don't read a book and think, ah, that's how we could solve uh, the issue of critical hits not really being the most interesting thing. But uh, I was playing Dragon Quest Eleven, and their weird critical hit pep up system like this would be an interesting way to enter into use of martial arts in tabletop into a way that flows into almost an auto attack pattern which then drives some ideas from playing absolver while also still allowing agency and not leading too much into having it be like super crunch heavy combat and that was a whole thing i was writing a month ago when i had free time but uh yeah i guess I, I'm looking at my bookshelf in front of me, and it's all it's all just research material for like historical fashion and food and just geography right. terms. And this is still within sort of the Raquel uh, and Best Left Buried sort of uh, idiom that you're working in, or is this something else that you're you're thinking? I mean, it's it's just my general sure. bookshelf. Uh, I am working on some new stuff, but uh, I don't okay. really. I talk about it, I won't finish it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, So I think since we're talking about books, are we ready to dive in for this week's book, Jeff? Yeah. So this week we are reading uh, The Thieves' World Anthology, edited by Robert Lynn Asprin. This is the first shared world, or generally accepted as the first uh, fantasy shared world anthology. Um, And and it's it's also edited by Lynn Abbey as well. Lynn Abbey, yep. She's credited later, especially on the later series, and she revived the second iteration of the series. Um, so before we dive into which, which specific copies of the book we're working with, uh, let's get our high Gaxian word of the week out of the way here. Uh, we had some very good candidates from our uh, book club, for, which was recorded uh, prior to the show here with some of our patrons. But I'm going to go with Damos's word, which is keloid. Um, it appears once in the John Brunner story, uh, which is the title, which is Sentences of Death. Um, do you have a, a page citation on that one, Jeff? The keyload one? I don't. Okay, it's description of the scar on one of the main characters. Uh, it's basically the ruin of her, her breast after uh, her mutilation. It's a, it's a turd-like keloid. And that was such a striking word for me. It was, I realized I was not reading something that was meant for me when I was like m- basically late middle school when I read that book. I was like, oh, this is not Tolkien. This is not something else. This is, this is something uh, quite different. Um, so that's the word, my high gags word of the week. Uh, Brian, do you have a, a good word there or Jeff, anything like that, that jumps out at you? Uh, nope. Sounds nope. like a good word to nope. me. Okay. For- oh yeah. No, I, a little, you know, I'm a little surprised about, uh, keloid, but you know what? That's, uh, I think maybe that has to do with just, I don't know, h- historical research stuff and the, uh, famous photograph of, uh, Gordon enslaved man in America that was used as, mm. uh, you know, a, a widely circulated 
piece during uh, the abolitionist movement of a man with a a back that has just been right from the... whipped with this tapestry of keloid yeah, yeah. scars. I, remember, I think I know what you're with the older, uh, with the the white haired gentleman, right? I think or there's a number of uh, unfortunately, yeah. There's a number one, of them, but uh, yeah. Uh, anyway, so we are reading Thieves' World. Uh, I am working with a Ace first printing with a Walter Velez cover. Uh, how about you, Jeff? What are you working with today? I've got the Ace 1982 paperback. Um, oh, I don't actually have the name of the artist ready. Do you happen to know Hoy? I uh, will look it up while you uh, look at it. It's very different, though, because they've got this sort of standard trade dress now for that. Yeah, So, but I've got the one from 1982. But what's interesting from the Patron Book Club is we discovered that a lot of these seem to have been kind of um, printed simultaneously because some people had your cover, but their edition was later than mine. So it, it is kind of interesting that apparently they were printing um, these different covers simultaneously. Mm-hmm. And how about you, Brian? What, what, what are you working with today? <laughs> oh, well, I, I am in a strange position where I'm working off the, uh, the Kindle version, which has a very generic and uh, un- unexciting cover compared to the original, which really captivated me. But I also have the graphic novel version that contains three or four of these stories from this one with art by Tim Sale. And I believe it's uh, Hans on the cover, just sort of looking very brooding. Right. He's sort of leaning in sort of uh, the shadows. I don't have that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, It's Gary Rudell, by the way, the one that you have on Jeff's cover. Mm -hmm. Ah. I also have today the uh, Chaosium box set, yeah. which has that same cover, which I went yes. up to uh, Boston on Mother's Day and found. And it actually is in very good shape and it has my RuneQuest uh, sheets that I made notes for because uh, I was making trying to stat out characters for that. Um, so there you go. <laughs> That's really cool. So I actually also did dive into the ebook also just because, you know, reading a uh, wild comedian and, and the like. So um, yeah. First impressions. Uh, is this the first time? Well, you read a few months ago. Is this the first time read uh, back a few months ago, Brian? Or is this, this uh, something you had read before? I feel like I had read at least a story out of this before, but that would have been in undergrad, which would have been almost a decade ago. But uh, it's also something that like, I've certainly read the RPG books related to it as part of just general research, probably also over the last decade or so. So th- there was some like osmosis of material where it's just like, oh, like uh, Catechithis. It's like that name is in my head. Why is that name in my head? Probably because I've read this at some point, but uh, you know, this, the, the vagaries yeah. of time as it right. were. Now, I haven't seen like, was it the Green Ronin that did the second, the second version? Or it was a later one in the early 2000s, which I have not seen. I think it was Green Ronin because I think I want to say DCC has it now, but I might be thinking of mm-hmm. Lankmar. Yeah. Okay. yeah, that's Lankmar. Uh, um, and Jeff, you're oh. a first time reader of this book, right? I am. Yeah. Um, this is a, a series I've been aware of for a very long time, but had not read previously. Um, I also would like to acknowledge that for the first time in this show's history, I'm coming into this episode, not having finished the book. Uh, so there, I did not get a chance to read the last two short stories, Murtis or The Secret of the Blue Star. I still intend to do so, but I won't really be able to contribute to much of the the conversations around those two stories. But overall, I really enjoyed it. Um, 
a thing I was talking about a little bit in the patron book club is um, before Dungeons and Dragons, I feel like fantasy fiction was quite different. I really feel like Dungeons and Dragons had a big impact on how fantasy fiction looked afterwards. But kind of once you really get into the 80s, you really see D&D's impact on it. But this book is a coming out at a really interesting time. It's 1979. D&D is kind of just becoming this big cultural phenomenon. Um, and it really feels like this is both being inspired by the same things D&D was inspired by, but also being inspired by D&D before D&D became super self-referential. So it is it is interesting kind of, I feel like you can, it's like D&D is being baked at this time and you can like smell the baking of Dungeons and Dragons while you're reading mm-hmm. this book. And sticking the uh, your uh, toothpick in the cake and seeing if it's done. Um, Brian, what were some of your impressions uh, with regards to this book? Uh, now, especially both your sort of your uh, sort of, atmospherically as you mentioned it was sort of like you felt like you had read it before but now that you've actually reread it it's like okay this is what jumps out at you whether it's stories or characters or anything else so i think i'm, I'm trying to formulate the proper way it felt very howardian it felt very like robert e howard less so how he wrote like his conan stories and a lot more how he wrote like uh sailor steve costigan or maybe some of the better solomon canes where it's like there's clearly politics going on here and those are interesting to see and there's a bit of humor to it as though you know like we know that this is about you know the, the political machinations of the not roman empire the rankin empire and also, you know, it's like we're giving some info dumps, but in a way that feels like you're engaging with the setting rather than, you know, the Nemedian Chronicles, as it were, though at least that's only like right, a page. Right. Uh, I feel like it, I mean, I enjoyed it. It's an interesting, very pulpy take. And I don't know. I know a lot of people who would compare this to like, Conan stories, but it doesn't have that cadence to it, doesn't have that confluence to it, which I don't think is a negative, but I I have seen that people compare it to like Robert E. Howard's, you know, the Hyborian age. And it's I'm not, I don't get that feeling at all. It's a little bit too cohesive for that. Yeah, for I, I feel like um wh- while I was reading this, I was thinking about how Elric feels like it's very much a response to Conan. And the, and, and Sanctuary feels like it's very much a response to Lankmar. So in the same way that, you know, Elric is both inspired by but subverting Conan, I feel like this is inspired by but subverting Lankmar. And, you know, Fritz Leiber, when he was first writing Lankmar um, back in the 30s through the 50s, like did some really fun and interesting, cool things with it. But as he was getting older and he was writing these like Fafford and Grey Master stories in the 70s, they're awful. They're really, really bad. So it's really nice to see somebody kind of come in and in a way kind of rescue these stories and do it through kind of a more modern lens. And I know that Lankmar is inspired by Alexandria. And this feels like there's some Alexandria in there, but it also feels like there's some Victorian London in there and a whole lot of the Wild West feels very Deadwood in a lot of ways as well. 
Um, so it's it's playing in a lot of different sandboxes, but in a way that I think is very um, very successful. Because also people talk about how Dungeons and Dragons is supposed to be medieval fantasy, but in reality feels a lot more like a Western. I was getting a similar vibe here. I was getting kind of a Western vibe in this like medieval fantasy. Oh, absolutely. I think uh, it's just, oh, I had a thought, but it left me. But, uh, oh, you know what it is? Okay, this was the thought. It's There's a, a quote by George R. R. Martin, where, which I... I find fascinating because of how people react to it. It's just like, well, what, what was Aragorn's tax plan? And it's like, this feels like that, but in the way it's like, well, it would be terrible and people would suffer. But we're so far away from Gondor, as it were, that it's more interesting to watch how this suffering and this attempt to pacify it plays out. Like, The Lord of the Rings is not about Aragorn's tax plan for when he's eventually king. But this absolutely, like with uh, Prince Catechithis, it's how do I pacify this city while also avoiding being assassinated, while also being able to be myself and prove myself and make a name for myself, while also dealing with the fact that this city is awful. And he's yeah. just one guy yeah. there. And that's that's what I find fascinating and fun specifically about that is this is not a... A, this is not a story about the politics of sanctuary, but the politics of sanctuary at this point in time are what make it interesting. Because if this was just, you know, generic town where things happen and we don't have this greater political context, that's that's just a, a D&D town that you blow through. It's nothing. It doesn't have staying right. power. But everything here feels like it matters because these are people in a way that feel like people who exist beyond just being functionary for protagonists to interact with. Right. They definitely are very rooted in this city as awful as it is. There are real stakes. Everything's up for grabs, right? And, and, and we start to see how these things interlock with each other. We have Jubal, who I think is my sort of most, I can't say favorite because it's objectively awful, but most fascinating character because he's, you know, a former slave who's become a slaver himself, a gang lord, um, has sympathy for the street children, but also is not above cutting down a horde of them to ensure his own survival. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and you also get a sense of his humanity because in a, because there was that moment where he's like thinking about adopting this street exactly. kid who then later betrays him and it, like they all get together and murder him. Yeah. But also it's interesting that we've got Jubal coming up and George R. R. Martin because it's been a while since I've read the Game of Thrones books, but I could swear there is basically a character in that series at one point who's a seems like it's just Jubal completely taken from this. Um, but I also know George R. R. Martin is somebody who um, gets inspired by a lot of other people's material and incorporates them heavily into his works. Yeah. I have no doubt he would have read this because he would have been contemporary to this. And then he did the Wild Cards Shared World Anthology, which is about slash science fiction slash superheroes. So I have no doubt that he would have been aware of this. Oh, yeah. you know? um, but you have the characters like that. And that world's also very inspired by Elric. Mm-hmm. Um. But I, I think your point is very well taken, Brian, that it, it's, it is situated, it is very specific, right? It, it's, it's, it's an agglomeration of a lot of different ideas, like, yeah, as you say, not Roman Empire, uh, not uh, Marrakesh or Fez, not uh, Deadwood, but it's still very specific. It's its own thing. Um, and so I think it's pretty success, successful in that regard, uh, you know, in terms of uh, 
the specificity. This is the real people. They have a history here. They have something that however mean and petty it might be, they consider it worth fighting for in some way. Um, yeah. Well, I, I think an important part of that, and this is not to fault the idea of a protagonist or a hero or a main character, but be, due, due to the fact that like it is an anthology and you have just characters in general, and this is certainly like just to lambast uh, A Song of Ice and Fire, killing off a character in Game of Thrones doesn't necessarily shock because they're characters and we know that's a style. Every character in, in you know, this initial Thieves world, every single one of them feels like, oh, they could just die. And this interesting narrative thread would be lost or it would continue through the ramifications of that because different authors are going to have different thoughts on that because nobody hears the main character so much as the events going on are the driving force for any of these stories. And so uh, I think like, I, I really loved uh, the shadow spawn story in this specifically because uh, Catechithis just sort of having that moment where it's just like, I can't tell if this is him just being like, the the reveal that like oh no this man's like you know anime crazy like he he's so into this idea of being like machiavellian but this is his first time doing that or if this is him just being like i know what i have to do to survive here and i will set up and destroy anyone who's going to prevent me from being the hero of this story while also just like having hans just be like this man's a lunatic this man's going to get me killed, but I can't do anything else right now. And it's like this character who's been presented previously in a more, this is the good guy, just having this like, I set up this whole murder just to be able to entrap you kind of situation where it's like, Catechithis is like 19, maybe. And just, you know, it's like the description of his eyes lighting up and then him puking by because he's come across a dead body but it's just like it, this man's a committed method actor to this lie to this pathological level of deception and in a sense like we it, we get the feeling that he has to be you know because if he if he isn't the strongest the strongest leader that that that's around he is going to be he's going to be murdered and his throne is going to be taken so his appearance is a life or death the stakes are life or death Oh, yeah. And it's just like he he weaponizes a sense of being incompetent and like weak and frail to try and I don't know. He, there's a lot going on there that's very interesting to see. And it certainly wasn't what I was expecting in the sense of like, oh, OK, this surprised me. This is a, a twist that makes sense, but genuinely like it's got follow through enough to satisfy mm -hmm. me. It doesn't feel like he was, you know, like, haha. I was truly a genius powerhouse from the start. That's why my brother sent me here. And it's more a case of like, no, your, your brother sent you here just so you wouldn't be a problem in the general political machination sense. And now you're coming into your own and you're absolutely going to become yeah. a problem. I think you're uh, both those, uh, Jeff's take point and Brian, were both really well taken. And it's interesting to me because he's sort of imp improving um, and it, 
his behavior is pathological, but it's because the entire system that he's embedded in is pathological, right? And so it becomes ultimately kind of yeah. rational that he's doing this, right? Um, go ahead. No, no, that was just an interesting, you know, and that oh, everyone's actions taken from their point of view are seemingly rational. And, you know, looking outside, say, like, well, this is crazy and this is a mm-hmm. hellhole. But, but anyway, go, go ahead, Jeff. Yeah, and I feel like in a lot of fantasy literature, the um, the the world building is a way of exploring plot and character. But here, it feels like plot and character is a way of exploring the world. Um, I feel like it's it's going in a different direction with this. But also, I think about like um, Richard Linklater's film Slacker, or I think about um, Christoph Kieslowski's Red, White, and Blue trilogy where the different characters are kind of, um, they, they, they're all connected to each other. And we like, we're with one character for a while and then we follow another character and then their, their, li- their, their world overlaps with this character and now we're following that one. Or we're seeing in the ways in which the intersections of these characters are affecting each other's stories. I think it's really interesting that that's kind of what we're doing here. And I think that, um, that the introduction sets us up for that really beautifully. I love that in the introduction, um, uh, Robert Lynn Asprin is saying like, you know, hey, some of this stuff might seem inconsistent. And that's because, and I love that he doesn't say it's because we have different authors working on it. It's because these are all from the perspective of different characters. So if the city of Sanctuary sounds and feels different in one story than another, or the, the character Illyria feels different in one story than another, it's because we're experiencing this city and that story through the lens of a different character. So I also feel like he set us up really well for those kinds of inconsistencies while also giving us a great world to explore via these characters who might die at the end of each story, or they might continue on and then just kind of become some random um, side character in the next story. Um. Brian, uh, if you have a thought, I have a thought that you just twigged on me there, Jeff, uh, on that. But uh, I'll, I'll let you respond uh, to that first. I mean, I've got general thoughts, but they're related more to the form rather than to that specifically. So sure. you should go ahead. Um, you just twigged to me, uh, Jeff, while you were mentioning that, that a lot of these stories are really concerned with the character's self-presentation, right? Almost all of them are. Right? Mm. Hans wants to show off that yeah. he's like this, like the, the cock of the walk, um, but he actually doesn't even know when he's born, right? And stuff like that. Uh, Captain Vara is like, oh. or like Illyria is quite young, right. but she knows that she's not going to be taken seriously if she seems right. young. So she tries to present herself as much older than she exactly. is to get more fortune telling. Captain Vara is always doing his thing, his bardy thing. Um, obviously, Kadakathis, as as uh, as Brian, you've been talking about, like he's presenting himself as this naive, golden-haired child. Um, you know, maybe even a weakling. But uh, and then we have even a uh, one thumb slash lastil, right, which is a very poet poesque story blood brothers i think that's a terrific story there too um yeah so and, and jabal's presentation so all the characters and and also since you haven't read lathand also lathand's story is also about presentation so it's a lot of the stories about presentation some of which is uh survival mechanisms some of which is subconscious on the characters parts and some of which is very calculated and so i think that was a, a theme that i was had not really clicked on and you, you just made me click on that so that's going through all the stories here which is pretty interesting Nice. I like that. Um, One thing I was thinking about, which might be a good segue into the gaming side of the conversation, is that generally when we look at fantasy role-playing games, players are often playing a character, and we get really involved in the character. 
But in Thieves' World, it's anthology style. And I wonder if there would be an interesting way that we could do anthology style fantasy role playing where maybe in one session or for one adventure, we're following one group of characters. But then when that adventure wraps up, some of the NPCs that have we've, we've encountered, we can now choose to play some of those and have them go on some kind of an adventure with the goal being that we're all working on exploring this city and this world together. And the focus is more on that than the character. I don't know if there's much there there, but as a concept, do you feel like there's much meat on that on the bones of that, Brian? And if so, how would we go about doing something like that? <laughs> I mean, there certainly is considerations that can be taken for that. I know the... Uh... The methodology of generation gameplay kind of factors into that a little bit where it's like you do one session as one group from one time period, the next one you're descendants of that. And that's in a couple things. But mm-hmm. once again, that's character driven. I think it's the issue of generally speaking, and I know there are games like Microscope and whatnot that are more about setting generation and an appreciation of setting generation but I do feel that most people who do play tabletop role-playing games are doing it to play characters specifically, yeah. or at least like even in a set of like playing a series of one shots in an established, like the same setting. I still feel that people are going to be more attached to their characters in that moment than they are to the setting as a whole. And I think that's sort of the issue of, uh, trying to get into like the ludo narrative reward patterns of how do you then make changes to the setting desirable because your character I don't know what that means. What is a ludo narrative reward pattern? Oh boy. So <laughs> essentially it's the what what is the uh what is the driving factor for why you want to play this? You know, if you're playing a a, a wizard, you want to get more magic to do more cool things, to do more magical cool things and eventually there's a plot that you will be interacting with probably. But if we're just talking about the setting and you're playing to develop the setting, if in one session you're playing a group of soldiers and another session you're playing a group of thieves, what is it the the impetus or the, the desire for the player to see as an outcome in the game world changing because the the desires for each of those groups is going to be different. Mm -hmm. So like what's the player, not the player character reason to play towards certain specific ends that might be in opposition to one another. Like I've done stuff kind of like that. Maybe four or five years ago, I ran a lot of legend of the five rings and I would occasionally have them switch between good guy party, bad guy party. And it was mostly mostly was able to get to work because I was like, hey, I'm going to kill you one way or another. So I'm giving you the chance to do that to yourself and have an interesting way to die. Yeah. But even then, that's, I feel like for making it a setting driven thing, you know, that that's going to require a whole new set of just figuring out. I think I have an answer. Okay, go for it because I'm, I'm stumped. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, but I'm, I'm really glad that you're, you're, you're verbalizing it this way because it's helping me get to it. So I feel like this would maybe be this idea that I'm, I'm talking about right now might be a good kind of game for rotating GMs where everybody who's playing is also somebody who's comfortable taking the role of Game Master. So as we're rotating through, then because Game Masters love world building and 
fiction authors love world building. So by rotating through this, I have I now have the opportunity to play characters that were introduced by other game masters when they were running. And now when it's my turn to game master, I can now take all of the information I've been fed and I now get a chance to build on that. It's kind of like a, a, a fantasy RPG exquisite corpse. Okay. I mean, I see what you're saying. I'm just, I'm still, I'm, cause this is, this is how my, my potentially under medicated mind is f- f- focusing up on this. It's just like, I just want to, I mean, obviously you can have a fun with rotating GMs and playing previous characters and, you know, ostensibly being like, these are mini campaigns all interrelated. My mind is focused on how do I make the end goal work enough that players are willing to defeat their own ambitions of previous characters and undermine that to try and come up with a, a larger end states that's that's where i'm i'm held up on this because obviously what you're saying would work and could be you know obviously a lot of fun like that's certainly a thing that people can do but i'm just like if this were just the full modality of play ah i'm gonna be thinking on this for like two weeks this is gonna right. keep me up at i mean it's definitely <laughs> just be like extremely yeah. tricky i mean yeah because i think for some people they they really want that adventure path we're building towards something but i'm somebody who like as a player and a gm i love sandbox style gaming and oftentimes i don't know where the hell we're going with this stuff and i'm fine with that <laughs> oh no that's same. like I, i'm a big lover of the sandbox and you know maybe it's just the issue of my general player base where if they know that they're going to go back to their previous party at some point or they have a character they like, when they're playing someone in opposition to that, they might pull their punches. Mm. Mm -hmm. And it's like that hurdle for me. I'm like, I'd have to find a way to incentivize jumping that hurdle. So as to not break the, in the, like the, the investment in like, no, these are different perspectives entirely. This is not your character now as an NPC. This is right. Right you as the player no longer factor into this at all right like if you're one of these uh soldiers that's guarding the uh the payroll right ideally as a soldier you should be incentivized to make it as hard as possible to steal the payroll but uh you know but you knowing that you're going to play the thief who's going to try to steal the payroll later as you say you might be like oh well um i don't make the trap as tough as it could be whatever you know however it is um yeah or it's the uh, I the I knock them out. I don't right. kill them. And it's like you have killed everyone you have come across. The only <laughs> reason you've chosen to knock this one out is because you spent thirty minutes doing a character sheet and a little right, doodle right. of the character. That's yeah, the it's only called reason. plot right. armor. Yeah, and so <laughs> okay, so, we see it all the time in right. fiction. Okay, so, so see, let's embrace it. Well, see, that's the thing because Thieves' World, at least via this anthology doesn't feel like there's plot that's armor fair, fair. and that maybe that's the point that that's point. holding me here is i'm like the issue of plot armor it would be present and that's that's the that is the point that is it's running circles in my brain trying to process the various data mm. loops of like how do i <laughs> how do i overcome this issue to make this as fulfilling an emulation of this style as possible rather than just playing this in a way that might be fun and interesting. Yeah. 
I, and I think, um, and maybe we can pivot here with, because um, another idea I had during the patron book club is that like, if you're playing in a, in a, in a role-playing game system, that's highly, that's highly lethal, a fun way of maybe bringing some of this in is when you roll up a new character, maybe you pick one of the existing NPCs you've encountered and roll that person up and start playing that. But that kind of is a potential bridge into maybe an, an easier question to wrap our heads around, which is what do you think would be a good role-playing game system for a setting like this? Well, it would certainly have to be uh, rules light because I, I mean, I'm not talking lasers and feelings levels of rules light, but I'm not, I enjoy making tools for prep and I enjoy prepping but I do not enjoy coming up with bespoke stat blocks for 10,000 different permutations of characters. And that feels like it Why would not? Much... <laughs> Sarcasm. Sarcasm. That much, that much math make my yeah. brain herky. But uh, <laughs> I've, I've, so it's like I could see it potentially. Gosh. I don't want to do a cop out and just be like, ah, oh, just, you know, just do it in, in Nave or something because that feels very. Well, it, it's a lingua franca that system. So, you know, I may as well say, oh, you just do it in GURPS. That's not helpful. Right. It's not helpful. It's, <laughs> it's not, not, helpful. not helpful. It's not not helpful, but that's just, you know, you could do it in D&D. Right. You can run anything in D&D. It's okay if your answer it's isn't, like, super about. exciting. Oh, no, it's, it's just me trying to think because I'm like, ah, oh, there's got to be a writer, a more right answer to it right. than what's coming to well, mind. I'm totally. Yeah, you don't and, have to get super wild and be like, oh, I feel like you should use Dread, but instead of Jenga, you should use this game. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, whatever it would be, you need to have very easy generation of characters. You need to have yeah. a very basic set of playing towards skills without skills being big numerical rankings. So you don't have a power creep right. situation. Exactly. Uh, I've been, I agree working. with that strongly level. I think a level system would actually not be super ideal for this. I don't yeah. think, I don't think D and D would be a great fit for that because yeah. of that. You know, I've, I don't know why I put up to, I would feel like the basic system that is used in frontier scum, which I did work on, uh, which is essentially, it's a Mork Borg, related thing but rather than having a bunch of mechanisms per character background you have skills which are based on a thing that you've done in the past so it's a little bit more of an approach style system when it comes to skills and skills just give you a general advantage so you can have you know a character who's got a basic stat line and then you have a skill that political machinations when people think you're an idiot or you know, like uh, skilled at uh, surprisingly serial killer like competency when you catch people surprised. And so you now have situations where your character is able to play towards their narrative and thematic root rather than having to be like this huge character build to get those sort of mechanisms to work. But I mean, I guess that would also be fine if it's circling, if we're you know still in the mindset of circling GMs, shared setting, potentially high lethality, because everything, it doesn't need to be crunchy. You don't need to have the sense of granularly leveling up and building towards being like the biggest, baddest mofo mm -hmm. around. I mean, uh, systems that came up in discussions with our patrons, uh, Blades in the Dark certainly came up because that's, you know, underworld gaming. Uh, the original box yeah. set, that I was uh, flashing in front of you was for all the common RPG sets at that time, which, you know, even some that weren't good fits. But surprisingly, 
<laughs> uh, one of our guests said that the best fit he saw in the whole set was Traveler because that was a, the rules lightest of all the ones. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, uh, I've I've got thoughts yeah, on well, <laughs> that. I've I enjoy I enjoy Traveler. I've seen so many people who suggest Traveler for everything at this point, which is weird yeah. to me. It's like it's a fine enough system, but just the like, oh well, oh you want to run uh, Lord of the Rings? You should run that in Traveler. It's like, <laughs> okay, I mean, that's not an incorrect answer, but uh, where are the support structures for that? Well, Hoy, the the, the creative Traveler like had some interesting things to say about that. Right, that? I haven't reread the whole thing, but Mark Millar, Mark Miller was uh, Mark, Mark Mark Millar. That's someone totally different. Mark Miller was like. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, he's saying, like, well, if this is the world that exists because it's it is actually a world in the travel universe, but it's it's sort of like often it's it's like Star Trek. It's own it's a little game preserve over here. You're not supposed to interfere with it because it has these other things like magic in there. Um, but Traveler itself is relatively rules light. You know, the the stat block is kind of inscrutable if you don't know what you're looking at. But once you understand what it is, it's actually very rules light, and it's just the skills and all the games mechanisms. Um, so, and I know there's a fantasy derivative of that the swords of cepheus so you could i guess i haven't looked yeah. at it um i keep on circling uh it's a little bit more high yeah. i'm circling a little bit towards i always mention because i've never actually played but i always say well i guess a lot of this stuff could be done as fate if it's, especially if you sort of story forward and less you know because then you can say okay well here's a, a trait that uh you know kadakathus has you know um secretly devious yeah. is his trait right because he's actually looks like he's completely fine right or Here's Hans Shadowspawn's, you know, cocky thief, whatever it is. So if you're playing towards cocky thief, you know, that's that, you know, but you don't have to have like, yeah, you know, huge levels in cocky thief, right? And and so everyone's sort of at the same sort of power level, uh, except for Enos Yorl. Then you say Enos Yorl is this, but he's also like blob of jelly on a, <laughs> on a sedan chair. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, it's, I think for me, the issue with that is I don't, I don't dislike generic systems or systems that you can run anything in. It's that I I have an obsession with support structures and building support structures in games so you can get the most out of a setting or whatever it is you're trying to do as a thing. And I find that most generic systems, and I'm primarily talking about GURPS right now, they don't support it as well as they could or their version of supporting like a different genre within use of a generic system is not incorporating the nuances of subgenres within mm. it. And so that kind of loses me because like if I buy a horror supplement to for GURPS and it's, you know, hammer horror, but it doesn't say that it's hammer horror, it's not necessarily the best thing to run the thing with or something like that. So you know that's obviously my my bias of when I think of generic systems, I generally think of the lack of support structures in right. them, and so they just I mean, in one year right. out the even other. if you're working with a generic system, I do think that you would have to tailor um, and I think that's like for example where the the chaosium basic fantasy engine works reasonably well it doesn't scale the way that like you know d and d or champions does right, but it does work reasonably yeah. well if we're talking about stuff that's sort of human scale, but still. Pendragon is different from Call of Cthulhu, which is different from Stormbringer, which is different. So each one, it's not, this is basic fantasy Stormbringer. This is, sorry, I've got street car going outside. <laughs> uh, Brooklyn. Okay. Um, so I, I, I totally get oh, what yeah. you're doing. Whereas GURPS, generally you always know you're playing GURPS. You're playing GURPS, blah, blah, blah. 
you're not playing Stormbringer. You're not yeah. playing Call of Cthulhu, right? And so I think that you might have yeah, the same problem that, with that, Fate. You'd be like, I'm playing yeah. Fate Sanctuary. I'm not playing Sanctuary using Fate, <laughs> right? Yeah, and this this is obviously also not to you know just just to clarify and cover my bases. This is not me coming down on any of these systems. Obviously, what I'm I've reached a point where I can't be angry at the math you choose to enjoy. I just know how I prep with my my ADHD mind and my my chronic fatigue and my overuse of caffeine. I know what it is that I can prep for in the crunch time that I make to prep and. Uh, Right. It ain't crunchy. Well, Brian, you're very much known for your, uh, uh, you know, tables and, and, and random tables uh, and tons of flavor. Yeah. So what would be a random table that you think would be appropriate for a Sanctuary game? Like uh, whether it's just thematically or one or two entries that say, hey, I would have to, this has to go in there somewhere if I'm doing a Sanctuary game. Okay, so I actually have a very good answer to that because uh, there's been a table that I... I absolutely love, and I've seen and worked on stuff that sort of played off the same material. So in the newest edition of Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay's starter set, there's a GM section that is a big listing of people that you see on the street, slash that you owe a favor, slash what their twist is. And it's so flavorful, and it's so granular, and it's like you would want something like that for Sanctuary, and uh, when I was working on Cyborg, in the back of that book, there is a mission generator that runs a, kind of on the same principles, but I feel like if you could factor in the sense of that into, like, who are these characters that you're seeing on the street visually? What are What is their secret ambition? What are they actively doing at the moment? How do you know them? Why should you fear them? Etc., etc. And... I mean, I, I love making those sorts of, of mechanisms because I, I have undiagnosed brain stuff that makes me really enjoy that. But uh, it's a, I mean, yeah, you would need something like that. And also, you know, just a gigantic list of names that works for this. And that's, you know, cultural names, names by way of various social class. And then you have by names because you got a lot of those in here. Uh I mean, I can see all the all the ways I could make that, and it would it would right. kill me. It would kill me to make that. That's a manuscript all on its own. I think I love it though. Great answer. I think entirely appropriate for sanctuary because sanctuary is different for everybody who comes to you know all the characters. And, you know, it's this thing, but each one of it sees it differently. Each one has a different point of entry, and so for even player player character groups, you could create like, oh, this is your point of entry. You're a ranking soldier. You're just a, a run of the mill uh, caravan merchant you're one of those smugglers on the smugglers island so it's so many points of entry to sanctuary so that the tables without having to think about every single thing um cohesively but obviously the work is on the person who created the tables and that's you brian in this case <laughs> you <know>? yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, i know um but even if it's more generalized prompts that are maybe uh you know using a a an adjective and a verb or something like that and then um you know uh and then getting more specific as you go along. So, so that might help. I guess let me, let me, let me ask you a question because I don't really get to do this sort of almost almost market research. Do you like spark tables? Like where it is just sort of a verb and an adjective? I've I've always found them just a little bit too lacking for me, but I feel like I was I was poisoned maybe nine years ago by a blog article by I believe it's Udan Adan blog about against the wicked mm. city 
about the various sorts of random tables and that spark tables have always hit me as a little bit too free association. And I don't know, maybe it's, it's my issue of when it comes down to making a table, I want it as tailored as possible. And I realize I can get far too specific. I've, I've had those, those accusations, lambasted against me that they can only use my tables maybe 20 times before they get repetition. I'm like, well, you shouldn't have to use it 20 times. Yeah. I think a lot of this stuff is a spectrum. I think, um, I would rather have some interesting spark tables than like D 20 encounters you could have in this city. And then there's a, just a high probability you're going to roll the exact same thing. Yes. Whenever I just see like, a D20 list of like the, uh, something I'm supposed to use often, I'm immediately turned off by that. So I would prefer a spark table to something like that. But ideally, I would love something that um, has multiple die rolls involved that gives me an opportunity to combine different elements to get something really unique. But um, so I think there's like the um, so I, I do want to have multiple options and I want them to be able to build on each other to create something much more yeah. unique. Um, so I do prefer that that specificity in that sense. Um, yes. But I, I would prefer a spark table over just a standard right. roll a D20 table. You know, that, that that's the thing that's always, and this is an aside to the aside, that's the thing that's always thrown me off about the uh, D20 of like, you know, of this very specific events in a city or a, in, a, in a hex. It's like, you could just have that be like a, a, a list of hooks. Yeah. By making it a random roll table, you invalidate its use a little bit because it can they can all be perfectly awesome entries, but yes. because it's written in a way where it implies use which may create repetition, yeah. it lacks versus making it into a a list of, you know, just cool things that you should choose to right. use. And that's that's sort of the built-in obsolescence of right. what I've I chosen. I definitely my see the problem you're talking about here. Um, for my part, I think the Spark Table, uh, you know, the, the sort of the, the high level where it's a little bit more abstract and generic, um, I think it can operate two ways. Obviously, if you're a person who has a general degree, high degree of confidence, but just wants to make sure that you know they're not falling into the same traps all the time, narrative traps, then a Spark Table could be very useful for you as a GM. It's like, oh, okay, right. That's yeah. not something I would have thought of. Like this particular approach, I rolled the spark table. This person is angry at something else that has nothing to do with the player characters. Um, but I think that um, I think what we're looking at a couple of things. You're thinking that potentially a spark table is kind of flavorless, or it's still requiring. But a spark table as a way to generate a more specific setting-specific table. I don't know how you do that. I mean, maybe in recombination, the way that you're talking about, Jeff. Um, uh, um, but like, yeah. So, I mean, I've I've got thoughts on that for a thing that I have been working on, with regards to Sparks tables in general. And it's for me, it's not that they're flavorless; it's that they're not as tailored. Mm. And because, like, what what anger means to one person is not the same as what anger might mean to the author, and thus you can have this lack of cohesion when you get your produced iterative right. result. But uh, I think it's also the issue of, I don't know, whenever I see Sparks tables, it's usually one word versus like, no, you can you can give me three or four words like it doesn't need to be a paragraph. I know that I'll I'll give someone a paragraph and a random encounter, random table thing because I'm I'm that way, sadly. But <laughs> it's a it's a whole thing. 
Yeah. We are running out of time, but I want to use that to jump off this last thought since we're talking about your design approach and, and spark, you know, iterative approach. Are there any projects that you want people to know about that will be coming out soon um, or even soon for whatever value we call it soon in, an, in, the, in the coming year? Uh, say. Uh. In the coming year? Oh, jeepers. Uh, well, I've been working on a big sandbox project for Frontier Scum called Beyond the Pines, which has been there's a good chance it might not come out just because I'm a, I'm experimenting with a lot of stuff in it. And I'm a perfectionist about that. It may die in my Google drive, but I've been making these very layered encounter tables to describe an area of just like Appalachian style hollers and the various people that are there, this humongous, humongous encounter table. I had to build a rumor economy because I, decided that was the thing that I wanted to do. Uh, it's very, I don't want to say it's cumbersome, but it's cumbersome to write. But uh, it's one of those things where I do intend to eventually automate the process. But uh, I mean, that's sort of the one thing that I can talk about that might be done this okay. year. I hope so. I, I would like to make uh, money. A fascinating idea. And then I think if there was some sort of... Um templating that would allow uh, people to sort of repurpose it for, as you say, much more specifics, uh, that, that would be an amazing tool, you know? <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's, I mean, the tables are very easy to grok once you see all of them. It's just the way that they, they all unfold like one of those accordion folders. Sure. And it's just like, oh, this is, this is very organized and useful, but also, you know, it just, it's like making one of those by sure. hands when all you got are normal folders. It's all like, right. oh, no. So, Brian, where can we look for that and any of your other projects as they, uh, you know, and uh, where can we find you on social media if that's if you want to be found? Uh, well, uh, I'm on goatmansgoblet.itch.io. And uh, I have no idea where else I am because I believe as of yesterday, uh Twitter devoured itself like a ravenous Ouroboros <laughs> and just started blinking itself out of existence. And uh, I don't really know if I want to get back into social media. Probably very wise. Just uh, it's so much effort. It, yeah, it's so much effort doesn't make me happy. I was professional on Google Plus back in the day, and Twitter was my screaming place. And then Twitter had to become my professional place, where still I screamed. And uh, yeah. I mean, my, my email is pretty openly posted if people want to find that and just bother me there. And I'm also, uh, I'm Brian Yaksha on uh, Discord. I'm almost always do not disturb, but if you want to bother me, I can usually spare a couple words. Go. All right. Yeah. Um, and if people want to uh, comment or find us, we're at Appendix and Book Club uh, at gmail.com. And uh, as, again, Twitter, I think, was still up this morning, but uh, at appendix underscore N. But uh, if it devours itself and pukes itself out, I would be just fine with that. And Jeff, how about our Patreon? Today we were joined by a few of our patrons at the Patron Book Club. So a special shout out to Joseph Hoopman, Rick Byrne, Robert Coleman, Damo Saklas, Dan Alexander, and Adam Stiers. Thank you for swinging by today. And I'd also like to give a shout out to a few of our other patrons. Thank you to Andy Action, Ethan Schoonover, Mason Coffey, Kurt Rosener, Noah Green, Harvey Gillett, Michael Chapman, Colin, and Jeremy Harper. Thank you all for your support. We really appreciate it. All right. 
Brian, it's been an honor and a pleasure having you on. Hope to get a chance to talk to you more in the near future. Uh, All right. Yeah, totally. It's uh, great talking to y'all. Uh, fun time reading this collection of short stories. Yeah. Awesome. yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed.